This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Miles McPherson. Miles, I am so glad to have you on the podcast today. And there are so many topics that I'm eager to talk with you about. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, I want to give a little brief background and introduction. You are the lead pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego, which I have read and heard from members of your congregation is one of the nation's largest and most diverse churches. You're a former NFL football player who played for the Los Angeles Rams and the San Diego Chargers. And at one point, you struggled through some challenging times, including a cocaine addiction. You are also a husband, father, grandfather, and the author of a few books, most recently, The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation, which I am so excited to get into. Miles, welcome to the Resilient Life Podcast. I'm so honored to be here. Nice to meet you, Ryan. And uh, yeah, I, play, I, I got cut by the Rams, so usually, when guys tell me they played, I always ask them, did you make the team? And they say no. But, and then I say didn't play. So I, I, just got, I just got signed and tried out, but I got cut. So it means I got fired. But I appreciate the shout out. So you, you, uh, so you played for the Chargers, if, I, if that's yeah. correct. You played yeah, for the Chargers. In technical terms, it's, it's like so many guys with the Navy SEALs. I'm, I've met so many guys who said, I'm in the Navy and SEALs. I said, so you went through buds? And they say, well, I flunked out. I was like, oh my ah. God. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's just, you, that's the equivalent. <laughs> that, then that's a bad equivalent. You don't, you don't want to hear guys saying that. If you didn't no, you don't want to hear guys saying that. I get that. Oh my gosh. Well, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you. As I was sharing with you before we, we jumped on, I loved your book. Um, I loved everything about it. I am so excited to dive deeper into it. But I want to start off with a look back at your childhood. Um, and ultimately, what led you to play in the NFL? And you share so many great stories about that journey. Can you tell us a little bit of your earliest memory, memories of growing up in New York and what that was like? Do you want the memories about racism or football uh, related to the book so, or football? So, so let's talk about the, the football memories. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. start there because I think it was an interesting journey for you. Yeah, football, uh, you know, I started when I was 10 years old, and I remember walking up to the to try out. It was probably about a mile and a half from my house, two miles. I had to walk on my own. Uh, well, I just decided I'm going to do it. And I walked up, uh, signed up, and I played four years at the Pop Warner, age 10, 11, 12, 13. Matter of fact, that guy, I don't know if you can see that picture. That's when I was 10 years old. That was my first year. And I played four years, went to play high school, obviously, and then went to a Division three school, University of New Haven. I didn't get a scholarship out of high school. Um, I went to a new uh, university, New Haven, had about 2,500 students. They had never had a winning season in a football team. I think they had football five years before I got there. 
And my freshman year, we were under, uh, not undefeated, we were winning season. My junior year, we were undefeated, which was their first undefeated season. And I was All-American, first All-American, and got drafted, first player drafted from that school uh, to the Rams, L.A. Rams, got cut and then played four years with the San Diego Chargers. And, you know, football was always my God, if you will, is what I worshipped uh, throughout my life, and it, it's been very good to me. It's not my God now, but it was back then. It was your God. I love the story you share in the book. And you share the story about your, your coach. And he actually puts an NFL contract in front of you. And it's just for you to see it and feel it and yeah. have that tangible yeah. example of, and you know, when I was first reading it, I thought it was your NFL contract. And then you say, it wasn't my NFL contract. It was just an NFL contract. And that piece of hope is what drove you um, to even greater heights and to, to yearn and, you know, have that pursuit of greatness to one day have your own NFL contract. And I thought, so interesting. You know, I, I too played division three um, athletics in college. I went to a small D3 school as well. What and school? Um, uh, Widener University. It's okay. in um, Chester, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. And, you know, I never had, I never had aspirations of going professional. I played lacrosse, but um you know, this idea that, you know, we, we can hold on to something to, to chase our dreams. And I loved that. And I, I was trying to think like, gosh, you know, with my kids, what tangible things can I put in front of them to say, this is what it could look like someday for you. So I loved that story. I thought it was really, really interesting. And so you leave college, you get the NFL contract, you end up with the San Diego Chargers. And what happens from there? Well, take you back when he showed that contract to me, not only was it, a, you know, it was something I could touch that was from the NFL, like from a whole different world, but it was as much him believing in me. I was 18. I was a freshman. And for him to say, because he had tried, obviously, that was where he got the contract. But for him to say, I see you, you have this ability. When I went to the uh, charges, I've been smoking weed since high school, so that wasn't a big deal. But when I went to the charges, um, it wasn't anything new, I should say. I, I started doing cocaine. I went into a hotel room with a couple of uh, teammates, maybe four teammates, <clears throat> and they pulled cocaine out, put it on the table. <clears throat> and I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And in a minute, I was doing it, and I was doing it for two years. Uh, I did it for two years, and that was a turning point in my life. So you fulfill your passion and your dream of playing for the NFL. And then very quickly, that takes you down a path that I'm sure you didn't see yourself going. But you're living a life where you're fulfilling your dream, but on the side, you're also, you, you dove into drug use. And you have this epiphany. And you, you literally, and, and frankly, I have to tell you, it's hard for me to believe because I know how powerful addiction can be. But you literally throw it all away through an epiphany at 5 a.m. You decide, I'm not doing this anymore. Walk us through that a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah. It, I may be oversimplifying it, <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I knew about Jesus Christ and I knew about surrendering your life to him. And, and actually when I was 19 years old, I was in a department store in New York, in New York, Long Island, where I grew up. And 
it's like 9.25 at night. And the reason I remember is because the store closed at 9.30. And I was waiting for my girlfriend to get off work. And all we did was smoke weed, get high, and have sex. I mean, it was, it was you know, you're, you're a teenager, and that's all you think about. And these two hippies walked up to me looking like Charles Manson. And, and I, I remember them catching my eye because it was a black neighborhood, black store, black, um, uh, the whole store, African-American people. And these guys were, you know, not from that neighborhood. And they came over to me and shared that Jesus loved me, died on the cross for me, and, and wanted to be my savior. And I believed it. So I prayed and asked Christ to be my savior. But being a Christian is a relationship. And I did not develop that relationship because I didn't have anybody in my life to help explain that to me. So here I am five years later. Now I'm doing cocaine. And I have been thinking about that day all that time. And, and so after two years in NFL doing cocaine, I'm like, you know, I'm throwing my life away. This is crazy. And so five o'clock in the morning, I had been doing cocaine all night. I was laying on the couch. My heart was pounding out of my chest. Cocaine will give you a heart attack. And a friend of mine died from cardiac arrest from cocaine use. So I had that in my head. I just said, Jesus, I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm going to recommit my life to you. And I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to live for you and do whatever you want. And I'm still working on the do whatever you want part. But I stopped doing cocaine that day. I stopped cursing that day. I got back with my girlfriend that same day. And we've been married 36 years. We got married that year. Uh, and I never looked back. It's a true story. <laughs> I never went to rehab. And I'm not saying rehab is bad because it is absolutely necessary. I just happened to, uh, by the grace of God, skip that step. And then started sharing that story that year with my team. I played two more years. That year I became a starter, had the best year of my life uh, career. And then in the fourth game, I blew out my knee. One of my teammates ran into my leg during a Monday night football game at the LA Coliseum against the Raiders. Basically the end of my career, I played another year, but I was never a starter again. And um, I remember riding home on the bus from LA to San Diego next to the doctor who was operating me the next day. And I told him, I said, Doc, um, my career is over. You know that, right? And, I, and he was like, you know, I said, listen, I'm a, I was a free agent to the charges. I'm, you know, I'm not a big money guy. And I would have been, but that was my first year starting and uh, still in the rookie contract. And back then it was like $50,000 a year. Um, but I said, my life's not over. God has, I gave my life to the Lord. I know that this is just a turning point in my life and I'm not worried at all. And I spent two hours with him on the bus telling him how much God loved him because I knew my life wasn't over. And I, I f had surgery, finished out the year, played one more year, and that was it. And then I, you know, I said, you know, I'm going to go tell people about what God's done in my life. And that's what I've been doing since 1985 is when I retired. It's so interesting because you think about, I watch a lot of documentaries um, and I've seen so many from professional athletes and that is a huge turning point when they retire. And a lot of them get very lost because that sport was their life. And for you, you know, you started football in Pop Warner at 10 years old. And then all of a sudden it's like, as quickly as it starts, it's, it's over. And so, wow, pretty awesome that you were able to recognize in that moment, like, this is, this is only the beginning for me. You know, because I know that- 
I'm glad you said Pop Warner because that not too many ladies say Pop Warner. That's very, it's, it's, it's very important. So go ahead. They say Little League football or something like that. Oh no, I'm familiar with Pop Warner football. No, no, no. Um, but you know, I so you take that and how quickly from there do you start your church? What's the path as you leave the Chargers? Right. Of course, you're a youth. You were a youth pastor and. Um, you, you get a degree in theology, correct? Yes. And, and which really was, I don't want to say irrelevant. Um, it really didn't, it really wasn't. Yes, I did. But what, what was most impactful after I uh, walked away from cocaine and the club scene and all that stuff, immediately I started sharing with my teammates. I started going, I went, started going to high schools, prisons, wherever I could share the story I just shared with you. And I did that a thousand thousands of times and then i had my next door neighbor who was 16 his brother got arrested like five o'clock in the morning one day we heard all this commotion outside and the cops were there and that later that day he was sitting in the car his dad's car by himself and i really didn't know the kid but i called him over to the house and said hey here's what someone said to me and i he accepted christ i said huh go get your sister she was 14 years old using crystal meth. She came over and she accepted Christ. Next thing I know, I had 35 kids in my house, nine nationalities. That young lady is still in my life. She still goes to our church. She's almost 50 now, almost. Yeah, she's about 50 years old. Um, she's, I think, 10 years younger than I am. Still in our life. Her kids are now, you know, out of, in college. But that's what started then i became a youth pastor maybe a year and a half later two years later and then 16 years later we started the church so it was a lot of time in between we're talking 36 years ago um and then we started church in 2000 and we just celebrated 20 years wow incredible okay. time goes by fast time does go by fast that is for sure all right so i want to dive into the third option a little bit and you, you have to forgive me up front because there's not going to be a, this is just a stream of consciousness of notes that I wrote and places I marked down of things I want to talk to you about. So there's no rhyme or reason to the, how this goes, but these are all things that really, for me, as at reading the book, with everything that's going on right now within our nation, I thought not just timely, but so important. So, so the first thing that I wanted to share with our audience and with you to talk a little bit more, it actually comes from your introduction. And it's when you start to talk about what the third option is. And so I think important to put out there and we'll dive into it a little bit more, but you offer the third option as honor honoring each other for who we are as individuals. And we'll dive into more of what that means. But that is what the third option is. Um, but one of the things you write is that culture pits one group of people against another by promoting a zero-sum game mentality that says, you must lose in order for me to win. And I read that, and it was, I mean, it was exactly and is exactly what's happening right now. It is one group against another. And it, it is the 
lose win mentality whose side are you on where do you stand i think social media only heightens this to a really elevated and unhealthy level but you didn't write this book last month you know? <laughs> and so i mean you certainly were seeing something and and here we are um during this time and and nothing could be more true about where we are talk to me about um, it's very easy to understand what this is, but talk to me a little bit about how you think we can overcome this idea. Yeah. First, let me tell you, a lot of smart people smarter than me helped me write this book. And when I started writing it, so much of what's in it, I didn't know. And I, as I started writing it, I realized what I didn't know and started reaching out to people who... Um, deal with diversity training and et cetera, and, and sociology. And it was so enlightening for me to write the book. Um, but in our culture, we have a us first them culture. I mean, it is you're for against Black Lives Matter, you're for or against, you're for or against defunding the police, you're for or against kneeling, you're for or against Republican or Democrat. And everybody feels like they have to pick a side. And if you pick one side, you're going to be canceled by the other side. Or if you pick a side and you agree with the opposite, you're a sellout. So people feel trapped and, and, and some people are very strong on their side and they disagree with everything on the other side, no matter what the other side says, even if it's something that's good. Or people just don't say anything. And so we're, we're stuck in this state of division and animosity. Um, and the third option though, instead of this side or this side, is that we honor what we have in common because we are more similar than different. Every single one of us. I mean, you and I, you, you live on the East Coast. I live on the West Coast, even though I'm from New York. I love the East Coast. And I can hear your accent, so it's making me warm inside. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a woman. You have blonde hair. You're white. I'm not. I mean, you see all these things, but you and I are more, have more similarities than differences. You're a parent. You're a spouse. You're a human. You're, you bleed red. I'm sure you love your sleep, and I'm sure you love your food, and I'm sure you love your pillow. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> I mean, amen. And you're made in the image of God. I mean, I can talk a hundred. You're, you're, you're an athlete. You're devoted. You work hard. Uh, you want to look good. I see you got your, your, your everything worked out with your braids. I mean, <laughs> we. I can go on and off all the things. And if you and I could just celebrate those things, guess what? We're friends. And and here's the other thing. It's not that I'm trying to make you like me and you, you or me like you. Is that the, the the unique way you do what you do brings value to my life, and vice versa. I'll never have braids like that, but I want my hair to look good, right? <laughs> but so I think the third option is that we give honor or place value, which giving honor is. And you're in mil military, you know honor better than I do. Is that we place value and 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 let me divert for a minute from the military. My dad was in the military. I, we've done funerals at our church. We have a 35, we have seven campuses, but one of them, the main campus has 3,500 seats in it. And we've done seven line of duty deaths for police and military. As a matter of fact, when the 18, I, I, forgive me if I get the number wrong, but I think there were 18 Navy SEALs that died in a helicopter crash. There were 30. Um, was it like seven or eight years ago? Yeah. We had the, a memorial service at our church. Wow. We had 2,500 special forces in our building in one room. And I, I got chills right now. 
we did that, and we also did several police officers who were, who were killed that had served in the military. And as you know, your Marine daughter, when you die as a Marine, which brings, is so emotional, brings tears to my eyes, that your body's not ever, not under guard until it's in the ground. So we had the casket in our church and it never did not have two Marines at each end of that casket. So, and let me just please finish this story because it's very emotional. At the end of the service, this guy had served in the Marines, the army, the sheriff, and, this, and San Diego PD. So he had Admiral, I mean, two generals, or whatever the highest in the Marines, but, the, but then a general, police chief, sheriff, the governor. And at the very end of the service, everyone had left. Uh, at this service, there were like 4,000 people. Everyone was outside waiting. And myself and one, two, three, four, five, nine members of the military and the police grabbed his casket. And one guy was crying. And they, he's, you know, how they have those very silent commands of how to pick it up, when to move. And he said, let's take him home. And we walked out. And so I, I got the most vivid glimpse of honor that I've ever seen was that. So it, if we can give as much something close to that to what we have in common and look each other in the eye and say look we may even disagree on a bunch of stuff my wife and i, I love my wife i sleep in a bed with her every night that i can if i'm not, not traveling we disagree on stuff but i still love her and so we still have a relationship and so this book's about giving people tools on how to bring honor to the people that we don't agree with and and that's what our culture needs to have sit down at the table and not start with you're over there, I'm over here, and I'm gonna win my, I'm gonna win the battle. Um, let's see what we can come together on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I think you speak to an important point, this idea that, you know, certainly those that um, have loved ones serving in the military or law enforcement, you know, you're you're kind of taught what honor is about. Um, I was taught that at a young age, I watched that as my brother who gave his life in Iraq was carried home in a casket by his fellow Marines. And that word is so important to me that I have an 11 year old daughter named Honor. So oh. I, I, when I saw that, you know, when I ordered this book, I was like the third option. I don't know what the third option is, but I'm gonna find out and I'm excited. And when I saw it, it was like the third option, Honor. I'm like, okay. I can get into this. So, so I love that. And I love what you said too. You touched on in the beginning, you said, you know, you and I are the same. And I was actually sharing with a friend. I've shared with a lot of people as I've been reading your book, I've been sharing with them, you got to pick up this book, the third option. And, and one of the things I loved about this book is that you actually break down the science of unity and you talk about our biological makeup and how we as humans, um, are 99.5% the same, no matter our race. And so when we live in this world so consumed by science and, and this idea of what science means, like look at the genetic makeup of the human race. We are literally all the same. It's just that easy. And sometimes it's the simplest thing that make the most sense. And I loved that you wrote that. Like 
there is as little genetic diversity within a race as there is between races. I mean, it's, think, it's pretty amazing. And think about this, Ryan. If you, if you got in a car accident, God forbid, let's say you had to get a surgery, let's put it that way. When the doctor cuts you open, he knows exactly what he's going to see. Right. He doesn't say, okay, she's white, so let me get the book out for white people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he says, she's human. So right. I know what I'm going to get. As a matter of fact, if I get something different, something, it's, it's, it's an anomaly, right? And as and, and, and a matter of fact, in one of the stories in the book, Taz, who is uh, this white, former white supremacist, a very good friend of mine, he, one of the reasons he turned away from his white supremacy is because a black doctor saved his life and white supremacists don't like blacks and Jews, but they also don't respect women. So a black doctor and a woman saved his life. And as they were pulling tubes out of his body, the black doctor was saying to him, you know, asking him about his life, caring for him. And he goes, why do I hate this guy? He's, why is he being so loving to me? And now, but when that black doctor cut him open, he knew what's going to be there, whether he's white, black, Asian, this, so even though we're 99%, 99.5% genetically identical, our organs and muscles and bones are pretty much 100% identical. So it even goes further than that. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, you share that story about Taz and this, this idea of, you know, the white supremacist was taught to hate blacks and Jews and women. And one of the stories that I found really fascinating that you talk about I don't think it's, I don't think it's Taz. It's a, it, it might be, I've got, again, got a lot of markups in here, but you do. Um, and I think to this day, you still work with a lot of prison systems and you visit inmates and you know, that's, that's important work to you. And you tell a story in your book about visiting, I think he was a 19 year old boy and um, you went and sp spoke to him and he was a white supremacist and he first opened up to you a little bit and he was sharing with you that he had been abused by his father and you posed the question to him then why do you hate me why don't you hate your father why do you hate me and he freaks out on you um calls you racial slurs really loses his mind you leave and then you show back up at the prison the following week and the staff says to you uh, we can't believe he came back. We thought we had lost another great volunteer. And you walked back into that room to talk to him again. And I love this idea that you go towards the pain. You walk towards the pain. You walk towards the conflict. You know, it's so easy for us as individuals to turn a blind eye and say, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. If I'm not a part of that, I don't have to deal with the pain that comes with it. And I love that it is a, outside of this story, it is a common theme with you that you really, you go towards the pain. Like you really, and, and I think that's a little bit of the motto for your church too, right? It's, um, I read it somewhere. Um, yeah, we move, on your church's website, it says we move towards the pain. Talk about that a little bit. Like. Why is that important for us in society to move towards the pain? Well, Jesus said that we're the light of the world and light is only useful in darkness. 
And Jesus came to save people, help people, love people, encourage people, deliver people who are captive in their own depression and loss, the, the, um, uh, addiction, etc. And man, on April 12, 1984, I was using cocaine, smoking weed, couldn't, be, couldn't keep a relationship going. I was lost. I was in NFL and I was lost as all lost can be. And I said, God, I'm sorry. And he said, okay, let's move on. If he, he could have said, man, we got a lot to work through first. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you done this, this, this. <laughs> I mean, I, we got 24 years of garbage to work through. And he didn't, you know, he, he said, I, I love you and I'm, I'm, let's move on. And so, you know, I can never repay that, but I can express that same kind of love and forgiveness to other people. And that's what we're called to do as believers. When I, you know, a lot of people look at Christian, I go to church. That's not what it's about. You know, no one goes to a football game to see the huddle. You go to see the play. And so when we go to church on Sunday, that's the huddle. We're getting equipped. We're getting, we're getting instructions. We're getting motivated. But it's, what do you do when you go outside the church? And that's why a lot of people call Christians hypocrites, and rightfully so. So it's about living it out. Our church uh, is about that. I'm about that. I don't do it perfectly. We don't do it perfectly. But it's absolutely what the gospel is all about. And even writing this book, I'm going to tell you, Ryan, it took me, I started this book maybe, uh, maybe four years ago. It took me a year, year and a half to write. I can't remember, but I was scared the whole time. I mean, I, you know, I was like, you know, I had white people saying, you better not write this. I had black people saying, you better write this. And, you know, you better say this, you better say this, you better say this. And, and it was, you know, every, you know, you say one word wrong and all of a sudden you're a sellout, right? So it was a, it was a very nerve wracking process, but I was like, I got to do it. I got to do it. And I want to, if I can go back to my childhood and what caused me to write it, I have a very diverse family. Matter of fact, let me grab something for you. Yeah. This is my, this is my, my grandparents. It's my grandmother and my grandfather in Jamaica, West Indies. She's half Chinese and half black. That's my dad. So I had, I had, that was one side of my family. I had two black grandfathers, half Chinese and black and a white grandmother. And my white grandmother who also lived in Jamaica was sent out of Jamaica, West Indies to Jamaica, Queens. So she wouldn't marry black Jamaican. They didn't want to marry a black man. And then she did. She did. Yeah. We never met them. They lived 15 minutes from us. I never heard of her family. Didn't know she had a family. It was, there was, she was like, they didn't exist. And, but we had her and that's all I knew and all I cared about. And then I had grandma, grandma Sybil right here. And I lived in a black neighborhood, went to school in a white neighborhood and I got harassed in the white neighborhood cause I wasn't white. Got harassed in the black neighborhood cause I wasn't black enough cause I was mixed. But my family was diverse. My football teams were diverse. And then when I was eight years old, Martin Luther King died. He was killed. And I remember feeling how unfair it was that they would kill him because at that time, I mean, everybody knows how important Martin Luther King was and is. I was like, well, what are we going to do now? And literally for all this time, I've had this little voice in the back of my head, like probably every other African-American guy on the planet, I got to do something. And so when I had the opportunity to write this book, it's like, how can I help people get along? Because I had seen people get along. My family, football team after football team after football team. And football is the greatest metaphor of how this country can be fixed. You have people 
from all walks of life. And even though there's only guys on the team, you have women that work in, in other roles in football that are part of the family. Football is family. That's our motto from NFL down. And it's true. It's not perfect, but it's true. And, the, and I was just talking to the NFLPA yesterday, and I'm an alumni, part of the family. And, uh, and, and by the way, my connection to the NFLPA is a woman who, who, went, to co- who went to college a few years ago, my, my alma mater. So, uh, so when you look at football, you, people, you have people come from all walks of life, yet we have one common enemy, the other team. Yeah. And one common goal is to win. Everything else is secondary. And that's how we get along. And that's what, that's what this book is about, is how can we look at the things that we have in common and, and focus on those things and work together for those things instead of saying, this is what I want versus this is what we all agree on. Yeah. And, you know, you make that analogy about the NFL. I often say that about the military. You know, Same. it is a, a diverse group of individuals who come together for a common goal. And so I've talked about that. I actually talked about that with um, another guest who was in the military. And I said, how do we create that type of camaraderie outside of the military where everybody can come together with a shared goal? And first I wanna say to you, I know that it was hard for you to write this book. I can only imagine the, the heat that you were getting from the sides, if you want to call them that, you know, but I'm so thankful that you wrote this book. And one of the things that I have found, because again, like a lot of people today, you go through this idea of self-exploration and wanting to learn and wanting to be educated and wanting to understand the role that you play as an individual um, within this racial divide. And I've done a lot of reading. I've had a lot of things sent to me to take a look at, videos to watch. And, and I'll say, I, I've, I've certainly gained something from, from everything that I've taken in, but none of them provided the solution-based approach that this book did. And it really did. And, you know, one of the things you say, and, you know, I'm getting, I, I, it's, it's in the beginning of the book, but you say, if we're going to overcome the racial divide in our culture, we must first understand both the nature of our division and the potential for unity. We must acknowledge that different shades have different experiences while recognizing that we all share the same designer, desire to be honored for who we are. And again, it gets back to that whole notion when you talk about our, our genetic makeup. What you said here was not some profound, oh my gosh, it's simple. But it's so simple that it's brilliant. And in the mess of different opinions today, you're not hearing a lot of solutions of this is how we combat the problem. It's a lot of like, join this side or join this side, but no, this is how we work together. And so um, I'm reading very little snippets from your book, but overall, that's what your book is about. It's about putting a solution out there for people. And that is what I loved so much about it. So um, again, big appreciation for putting it out there. Um, And I would say to to your viewers, every chapter has three questions at the end that you can discuss. 
and their basic principles is not based on, okay, white people get over here and black people get over here. It's not that. As much as two different fictitious groups that I set up based on what you, one group is a prep school students, another group is a state school students. And so we use these principles based on those two groups. But these six sessions are going to teach people how to understand blind spots, how to understand grouping, how to understand how they label people, how to have race conversations, and walk them through all those lessons. Because a lot of times, even when you read something, okay, now what do I do? Well, here's an opportunity to actually listen to me teach about it, read about it, discuss it, and then go do it, and then have homework. Matter of fact, one of the homeworks is that during the week to write down all the negative labels you hear the media and your friends put on people. Because if you put a label on someone that's less than neighbor, brother, or sister, you dehumanize them and you limit how well you can love them. And so this e-course is even more um, uh, a better tool than the book and, and an added tool to the book to help you understand and learn how to do this. All that can be done, got at milesmcpherson.com. They can find that uh, information at milesmcpherson.com and, and download it and buy it. And we'll, we'll link to that too um, on our YouTube channel um, for everybody. Um, okay, so I have kind of a hard question for you now. And it's something I found through reading this book. And, and I say hard because I think it's, um, you know, for me, it's something that I, I thought about a lot while I was reading it. I thought about how I would approach, you know, I have a staff of almost 60 employees at my organization. You know, was this the right book to approach with for them? Um, you write, my hope is that we can shift our focus away from merely avoiding saying or doing racist things to become lovers of people. And I love that. When we focus on honoring others as our mission in life, differences fade. Prejudice becomes a foreign concept. We begin seeing the image of God in the people we meet and finding joy in helping others fulfill their God-given callings. Everything you write there, I completely line up with. I completely agree with. But your third option, you know, your book, it, there is a strong presence of God and faith in your book. What do you say to those who want the third option but haven't found Christ in their life? Can, can yeah. they do this without God? Oh, yeah. So, so the question, honor is something, as you said, um, is a military concept. And so people in the military understand honor, they understand respect, um, they understand um, value of people, they understand laying down your life. I mean, laying down your life is, no, <laughs> you couldn't be more Jesus-like than laying down your life. But let's take God out of it. Yeah. We all have, we all have equal humanity. You are 100% human, I'm 100% human. And if I can give value to your humanity and honor and acknowledgement to your humanity, your desire to live, your desire to love, your desire to be in relationship, your desire to have family, your desire to have a, a safe environment where you live. Those are basic human needs and, and we all deserve that. So whether you believe in God or not, I think we can all agree on those things. Um, uh, and I think that's where, you, that's where you go with it. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm so happy you answered it that way because 
in my head, I was saying, be prepared for him to say, no, you can't, you can't take any of these lessons learned without God, you know? And, and I was prepared for you to say that. And, and it's not that I disagree with you there, but I love, yeah, it's about humanity. And so um, I love that. Yep. You talk a little bit about blind spots. You talk about culture and blind spots. And there's this undertone of, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that you live your life for Jesus Christ. You run a, a beautiful church, and that is what you do every single day. I don't know you that well, but you definitely, you have some flaws, just like every single person does. We all have flaws. And so we talk about this idea of culture, and I want to talk a little bit, you know, one of the things I thought about when I was reading this, it's, you know, we're both leaders in our respective industries. And I was starting to think about this idea of what if people only judged you and I by our flaws, right? They only judged you and I by the things that we didn't do so well from the times that we did fail in life. Um, you know, I don't know that, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't want to speak for you, but I don't know that you and I would be considered leaders if they looked at us just for our flaws. And so how can we look past this idea of this idea of what our culture puts on us in terms of what it means to whether be a leader or live life um, for Christ, um, you know, however way you want to you wanna frame it. Um, but there's a lot of talk right now about cancel culture. And I'm sure you've heard that word. And I, and I want to talk a little bit about, you know, Again, I'm, I'm kind of glossing over a, a big section of what you talk about in your book, but I think it's, it's important right now as we look at, I heard this great story and it was from actually um, General McChrystal, who is a very revered um, retired four-star army general. And he tells this fantastic story about his portrait of um, Jackson that he used to hang and it was his prized possession. And, um, you know, he has since taken it down and he, you know, it's, it's not his prized possession anymore. But you think about this idea of, again, the, the, the places we are as individuals where we have times to lead, but then the, the places that we are where we fail. And so how do we balance that with looking at us, again, as, as humans? Great question. I, I, I'll answer. There's a bunch of, you said a lot. I know. I said a lot. I went off on a tangent there. I apologize. Yeah. So, so I'll start with the original idea of the blind spot. And this is the only concept in the book that I have two chapters to. A blind spot is not knowing what you don't know. And all of us, 100% of people on the earth have blind spots. And I'll explain it in this way. Social narrative is a story that shapes how you see the world. And so when you grow up military, your parents, your culture, your family, people around you taught you certain things from a military perspective. It's not right or wrong. It's just what you were taught. And therefore, there were things that you weren't taught or exposed to or perspectives you didn't have. It doesn't mean it's not bad or good. It just is. And so everybody has a certain social narrative, but that social narrative creates specific kinds of blinders. And that's why we need each other. Because if you come to the lacrosse team and you, you're a military dad and this guy has a, a dad who is a, a, a teacher and this guy has a dad who's an engineer, he, this guy has a dad who's dead. 
right? They all have different perspectives, social narrative, the story that shapes how you see the world. Well, that social narrative is, is not going to teach you everything about everybody and from every perspective. It's impossible. So there's just things you don't even know you don't know. Now, not knowing those things aren't necessarily bad, but that's the idea of blind spots. When it goes to flaws, we're all imperfect people. The Bible calls them sinners. It's exactly the same thing. Nobody's perfect. That's all that means. Right. So that means we're going to make mistakes. We're going to say things wrong. We're going to, we're going to, um, uh, even, even a, you can be racially offensive and not be a racist. That doesn't, so, so therefore you could say things that are racially offensive and it, and you don't even know it. And so, but it doesn't mean the offense isn't there, but it could mean that you're not racist. So, so those, both those things can be true. That's a blind spot. Uh, and like saying, I don't see color is a blind spot. You may think you're building a bridge, but the person of color, you just cancel his color. Well, <laughs> it's just... funny too, because um, there are a lot of people within the military that I have heard that say, I don't see color. You know, when all this came up, I don't see color. And I know 100% they don't mean anything other than the fact that I see you as my brother, that we stand together and we fight a common goal together. We go back to your original thing, blind spots, we go to flaws and leadership, because I want to make sure I answer your question. Yes. Um, we all have blind spots. We all say and do things that we don't realize are offensive or that we just don't even know. It may not even be offensive. We just don't even know we don't know. Um, I, I, I even sometimes when I talk about blind spots, challenge all the guys who are listening, ask the women in your life, are you creepy? Because all women, and I always, whenever I say this, I say, fellas, look at the women's face that are in the room with you when I say this. And I asked all the women, how many of you women know a guy who's creepy? Every woman knows. I do, like I do. Right. <laughs> and, and, so, and so you may be that guy, but guys don't even know it because they're just born creepy and they look creepy. Yeah. You know, but it's a blind spot, right? And I don't know a lot of guys who would ask that question because they'd be like, man, maybe that's me. So we all have blind spots. That's not a, a, a rip on somebody. And by the way, blind spots slash bias, bias is that you favor something over something else. You can't be biasless. I like chocolate ice cream better than vanilla. I like football better than baseball. It's not bad. It's just that's what I prefer. I prefer hot weather over cold. It's a bias. And we learn that through, through a lot of things growing up. It just is. And, and a lot of people don't want to feel like if, you, if they are of racially offensive, that then that means they're racist. And because they don't want to be racist, they try to prove that they weren't offensive. And sometimes when you hear people say, don't say you have a black friend, because sometimes it's coming off as because I have a black friend, nothing I will say would ever be offensive. Right. And that's not true, <laughs> you know, because, because also the assumption is if I have a black friend or a Chinese friend, the assumption is that because you know one or 10, you know all of them. And you have, all black people don't think alike. All black people don't see just the same, everything the same, just like all white people don't. So that's a blind spot. And, but in learning that, we have to be willing to learn and say, okay, I get that now versus saying, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to learn. I'm going to stick the way I am. And, and, what I'm, and what I mean by that is I'm not going to understand what hurts you so I can be sensitive to it. 
Um, it doesn't mean I have to bow down to everybody's need, but I want to be respectful. And, and because just as I hurt, you hurt. We have a similar, similar. So we get back to flaws. All of us are human. All of us have blind spots. All of us make mistakes. And, if, and so when I make a mistake, because you have made mistakes, can you forgive me like you would like to be forgiven? That's what we share in common. And so the cancel culture is so hypocritical because the premise is when you make a mistake, I get to cancel you, but I'm not canceled when I make my mistake. <laughs> and I don't wanna be. So if you're gonna, as Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, right? I mean, that, even though that's biblical, that's what we're trying to live out. The golden rule comes from the Bible. And well, so, I think, yeah, I think that, sorry to interrupt, I think that's what it's so scary for me, this idea that like, if you say one thing wrong or do one thing, you know, especially when we're all trying to learn and grow at this time, right? And you do, you take one misstep and that could be it for you. So then it puts this perpetual fear on people that I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to stay quiet. I'm, you know, and uh, so that's, that's a really scary place for us to, I think, to be as a country that we, we can't do anything because we're so afraid because if we do fail, not only will that failure be on us, but we will be crucified for it and we may not even be able to recover. And we, and we know that forgiveness is not part of the equation. And that's why the third option is so critical because it gives us that option of forgiveness, the whole chapter in there, forgiveness. It gives that option of forgiveness because if I make a mistake, can we agree that we're both similar to be imperfect? You're imperfect, I'm imperfect. You've made mistakes, I've made mistakes. You would love to be forgiven, I would love to be forgiven. You would love to learn and be better, I wanna be better. So these are all the things we share in common. And if we can start there, and listen, I want to learn and you want to learn. So let's talk. Or I want to learn and you want to teach. So teach me and vice versa. And that's why the third option is so critical to learn those things in the book and in the e-course so you can walk this journey out. Because one of the other things that we all have in common is that we're on a journey learning. You know, and we're going to be better hopefully next year than we are this year. When I piloted this e-course, and at the time it wasn't e-course, it was a it was a course that I taught. It was six hours, six sessions, an hour each. I did it with the law enforcement here in San Diego. And we had several classes, several different days of different groups. And we asked them when it was over, was this better than the diversity training you had received? Ever. And we told them ever. <laughs> and they said, 100%, this was a game changer for them. And the, and the reason they said that, and, they, and we asked why, they said because it caused us to look at our own heart. It didn't attack us, it didn't condemn us, it didn't you know, vilify us. It, it caused us to look internally and voluntarily at our own heart and reevaluate why we think, why we do the things we do. And it wasn't only police, it was uh, 15 law enforcement agencies and 15 people from the community. And we had them in groups and they were interacting. And so the e-course that, that I made for this book is the same content to take people through a process to have these conversations in a safe environment to really internalize it and go, you know what, I, I, I'm not perfect, but it's, it's okay. Like, it doesn't make me a bad person. I can actually learn and grow 
and, and, and I can understand how to face my faults or shortcomings or places where I have blind spots and learn. Yeah, absolutely. And you explain, you actually talk, I love when you talk about um, the, the third option and you say, imagine asking someone whether they like chocolate or vanilla ice cream better and then have them that, having them answer cheeseburger. <laughs> the third option sometimes seems bizarre to our limited understanding. And especially right now when it's like, well, are you here or are you here? And you're saying, no, there's a place where we can be here and we yeah. can be here together. And it's not about anything more than honoring each other and how we come together. Yeah. And so I want to ask you a question. You wrote this book a couple of years ago. You've dealt with the racial divide since you were young. You've seen how it's ebbed and flowed throughout the years. Where do you think our country is going to be in the next 10 to 20 years? Not where do you want it to be, but where do you think it's going to be? Um, that's a, there's a lot more to that question, uh, cause there's other, other forces and other issues that are going on in our country right now that are race that I think are even bigger issues that are going to impact where we end up. Um, but, um, I think, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, 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 I give you a reason why before George Floyd, I wrote the book came out two years ago. I wrote the book and at that time, there was Charlottesville, um, we just had the election and things every time, every month something would happen. I'm like, we gotta have it out now. And then I started getting invited to churches that I know a year or two years before that, they would never have someone talk about race. And then uh, since the two years were gone by, George Floyd happens and for about a month, people really wanna talk about it more than I've ever seen in my life. And then in the last month, it's been the opposite. It's worse. I think there are a lot of people who are a lot more dug in against talking about it because of cancel culture, because of you know getting vilified. And I don't know where it's going to go. I don't. I don't know if people are going to dig in so much that they're going to say I'm done with trying, which is very disheartening. So I don't know. I just know that what I'm committed to is this message, and what I'm going to be committed to is getting this message out to as many people as possible. Uh, I have started an organization to get this out. Uh, the e-course is the first step of that. Um, and so people can actually go through and start living it out. But um, I am, I have a, a plan and a passion to get the word out because I've seen people, listen, one of my friends is a former white supremacist and I would trust him with everything I own. I mean, it's funny. He's a, he's a big, I wish I had a picture of him. He has tattoos all over his face, every part of his body. He's complete. He's the guy, if you saw, you, you go on the other side of the street. And my wife calls him Teddy, Teddy Bear. <laughs> you know, he's, because in reality, that's what he is. Yeah. He's a sweet guy. And I've seen all kinds of people from all kinds, uh, ends of the spectrum, get along and heal because we have shared humanity. And so I believe in that with all my heart. Um, and so that's what I'm fighting for. And I, I, you know, I hope that I can make a difference uh, where, where we end up 10, 20 years from now. 
Well, I certainly think you all are already making a difference. This idea of shared humanity, um, of honoring each other. It's, it's so simple yet so profound. And I love nothing more than a simple message. You know, at the Travis Manning Foundation, at the organization I run, our, our simple message is, if not me, then who? Those were the five words that my brother spoke before he left for his final deployment to Iraq. And we try to drive those five words and, and, and push them into anybody that becomes a part of our organization. Every day, challenge yourself to have an if not me, then who moment, a moment where you lead by example. And I think there's something to say for these quick bites of what we can do. Um, it doesn't have to be a complicated approach. It's shared humanity. It's, it's as simple as that. It's shared humanity. See people for the way that they should be seen and value them as part of the human race, as genetically the same makeup as you. And not only value them for your shared humanity, but value them for your differences as well. Um, I think it's incredibly powerful. And by the way, Ryan, the, the shared humanity we have, part of being human is, is being a, a creatively unique. And so when I, when I come, when I see you as similar to me, part of that similarity is that you are creatively unique and that you have something to bring to the table. It's not that I'm trying to make you like me or me like you. I want to know, hey, tell me about, you know, how did you, you know, how do you run your company? Tell me about what, well, I was on vacation and this, this guy was working out in the uh, gym and I could tell he was an athlete and not just someone who works out. Cause you could tell athletes have a different something, something. Yep. And, and I, I knew this guy was, was at, but I, but I, but I, he was in shorts and I said, I, those aren't football legs. So I know he doesn't play football because I've seen thousands and thousands of football legs over since I was 10. He played professional hockey and because he played hockey, he skated and he developed the front part of his legs more than the back because we run, we develop both. So we, we had, what we had in common was pro athlete. We had in common off season, working out, rehab, you know, season, et cetera, getting, getting hurt. Um, and so even though we, we had a lot of things in common, the things that were different about us made our, relationship more interesting yeah so it, 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 the, the 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 creative uniqueness is part of our similarity absolutely i i couldn't agree with that more um so i want to ask you one final question it's the same question that we end every episode of the resilient life podcast with and and that is what does living a resilient life look like for you i think stay in the course um, stay in the course when times get hard, um, when you're discouraged, when you're running out of energy, running out of money, running out of friends, running out of vision. Um, you know, as you know, when you're in the military, you sign up, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> you, you're stuck, right? You can't just quit. I guess you could, but you get dishonorably discharged, right? Yes. And it is the same with football. You know, once you once you sign up and you practice talks, you can't quit. But, you know, I, I ain't quitting. You know, we're, yeah. no matter how hard this is going to get, we're just going to keep going, which is why sports is such a great way for people to grow up or be in the military. And so I think resiliency is 
is stay in the course no matter the obstacles and that's what I would that's how I would say it so this this journey you know there's going to be a lot of racial things I hear about it every day all these things that are happening in our culture it's heartbreaking however we're going to keep fighting the fight keep getting third option you know that's why we created this e-course and we're going to create it for law enforcement we're going to create a series for you know uh kids in school because we want to get this word out throughout the country and the world. Stay the course. Stay the course. I love it. Stay the course. Miles, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, incredible discussion. And um, I I'm going to tell you right now, I have committed to the third option. And, um, <laughs> you, have, you have someone on the East Coast, right outside of Philadelphia. That East is Coast? Living, <laughs> yep. Living by the third option starting today. Thank you so much, Miles. Thank you very much. Well, that does it for today's episode of the Resilient Life Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Mannion. Do yourself a favor and go out and buy Miles McPherson's book, The Third Option. You will not regret it. Uh, there is so much great stuff in here that's particularly relevant in today's world, and it will really get you thinking. I also want to invite you to join me next Tuesday when we drop yet another episode with a very special guest. And as always, don't forget to subscribe, like, and share the Resilient Life podcast with your network. Look for me on Instagram at, at rmanion, and I'll see you next week.